Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave, and this is episode 92 of the podcast. In this episode, we're going to be going over seasonal preparedness, getting ready to live with the seasons once more. Stay tuned. Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. I wanted to announce a very big event happening in the summer of 2022. I want to give you this information now in the wintertime so that you have time to prepare for this because this is a big deal. The 2022 Global Bushcraft Symposium has been announced. It is going to be happening from July 27th to the 31st of July in the year 2022. It is being co-chaired by Lisa Fenton and Paul Kirtley, names that you should be well aware of, folks, especially if you're all into the bushcraft world. Speakers are including Dr. Teresa Camper, Bruce Zawalski, Gordon Dedman, Patrick McGlinchey, and Rupert Brown. These are these and many others are why I'm excited. These are some of the greatest brains of today when it comes down to woodcraft, survival, indigenous ancestral skills, anything you can think of in the realm of bushcraft. It is happening at this event. And it's happening in Wales, United Kingdom in July 27th to the 31st in the year 2022. So pack your stuff up now, get it all ready, get your passport in order, get all the stuff you need in order, because this is going to be a very big event, very, very big event that I am excited to be going to with Ride the Adventure Guy. We may even record a few podcasts with some folks while we're there. Hope to see you there this coming summer from July 27th to July, uh, July 31st. If you want to learn more, go to www.globalbushcraftsymposium2022.com. Again, www dot global bushcraft symposium 2022.com to know the landscape is to open up a door to feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before we know that you will love this podcast so shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. This episode is coming out on February 6th of 2022. So living with the seasons, we got to be mindful that the seasons can fluctuate. The year can fluctuate. Depends on what year, what month. Things can be different. If I told you, be ready for February 14th to finally put in all the taps on your sugar maples, in three years from now, it may have been, you know, late January or early March or flipping April. So bear with us that you have to kind of look at things. You have to be observing the patterns. Uh, there, there's a lot of things like semiology, I think is what it's called, where you're reading the signs and telling from one sign what's going to happen next. Um, just learning how to track nature. Just like we talk about with Chris Gilmore quite often, uh, whether it's on the hunter's journey or on learning nature's language. These amazing courses that he teaches that we support and endorse on this podcast as frequently as we possibly can. Go check them out. Learning Nature's Language is coming out right now or is uh, is live and active and you can join in and learn a lot. And the next cohort for Hunter's Journey is coming out very soon as well. So keep that in mind. But as we explain in those kind of classes and as Chris explains and many of us to teach outdoor living skills explain, it depends on the seasons. You have to read the signs. Um, in previous episodes, we've talked about the Anishinaabek sugar bush. And one of our teachings about learning how to gauge when it's time to start getting ready is when we start seeing crows, not ravens, but crows in large numbers, in fields, on power lines, out on the lake, 
whatever it may be. When you start seeing mobs of crows, you need to start paying attention to that and getting ready for the sugar bush. That's your last warning. You got like a week, maybe two max before it's ready to go. But like I'm looking at our forecast right now. Tonight, it's minus 21 where I am, uh, plus the wind chill. I'm actually going to open up my weather app. I'm not going to tell you which one because I'm not going to endorse any particular weather app. Uh, and it's currently minus 21, feels like minus 21 because there is no wind chill. We were, it's nice and warm where we are. But next week, it's getting up to minus one, one degree, zero, minus one Celsius. And this is all in Celsius, by the way, folks. These temperatures are where we start to see fluctuations of sap going up in the trees. So we may not, you know, have sugar bush next week, but we might get an early run. And so it's wise to have the trees observed and checking the weather and checking your weather forecast and checking just the general climate you're in, what might be coming next. So where I live, you know, it's minus 20, it's been minus 20, give or take, sometimes minus 30 for the last mm, three to four weeks. We've got some nice deep snow. This has been one of the first years in years, first time in years that I've been able to consistently go snowshoeing in my area. Uh, often where we live because of climate change and frankly, being in a Southern portion of the province, we don't get the deep powder that we can get even just an hour North of here. This year has made up for it. We have even more snow coming this week. I'm excited. I love snowshoeing, but I'm also reading these signs and observing what's going on around me and I'm getting prepared for the oncoming season. We have, uh, in the past done episodes called uh, indigenous food systems, talking about those seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter, regarding Anishinaabek lifeways revolving around food. So it's easily for me to, it's easy for me to kind of fall back into that trap and give you kind of a redundant podcast episode. So I'm trying to avoid that. What I want to talk about is in general things that we are getting prepared for right now. I am getting ready to start sowing seeds and, uh, some of those seeds are for fruit trees. We Back in the fall, uh, back in the summer and fall, I gathered Saskatoon berry seeds and I gathered uh, like sweet cherry seeds from their pits and I began cold stratification for them. This week, I'm going to begin planting those into their own uh, compost rich earth uh, soil mix pots and they're going to stay under grow lights in my basement until hmm, probably about late April, early May. And then we're going to start cold hardening them and getting them ready. And by then it should be good to put them out for the, and actually plant them in our garden. So that's one of the big projects I'll be working on in the next while. I've got about 75 cherry seeds and about, oh, 40 Saskatoon seeds. So they each have to have their own pots. They have to have a good soil mix and we're going to keep them not necessarily wet and rich, but we're going to get them into that soil and letting the natural moisture of the soil start to work with the seed for the next stages of their stratification to get ready for growth. Growing fruit trees, whether it's a service berry family or an apple family or a cherry family species is just fun. It's a weird little kind of weird mid-season Christmas surprise for yourself. Like you get to see what pops out of the soil and does it survive or not. Uh, in the past, I've done this with acorns and walnuts and hickory nuts. This is one of my first years doing it with cherry. And I, this is my, this is my first year doing it with Saskatoon. So I'm very, very excited to see what the, the uh, results are going to be. So that's one of the first things I'm going to be working on. 
all the while observing those maple trees, checking to see if they're starting to actually run, watching for those big flocks of crows, and I'm also still running my trap line. We've been running the trap line for about three weeks now, uh, maybe four, uh, I'd say three, just to be safe, uh, just to be conservative, I would say three weeks now. And in that time, I've gone out with a lot of good friends and we've scouted out the areas. We even took uh, a drone out, uh, a licensed legal drone. We went out and flew it over the wetland that I have rights to trap on. And it was next to impossible to find any evidence of beaver, which is really, really weird. Because back in the fall, when we were duck hunting on that pond, there was a ton of beaver sign, including actual beavers swimming around in front of us. And so our theory is, our hypothesis, I don't want to say it's a theory. I want to make sure that we're staying as scientifically accurate with our terminology here. Um, my hypothesis is that we have bank dens. Instead of them having nice big open dens out on the water, we believe that they may have actually gone to the other side of the marsh where it's really, really, really thick and cattail. But it's a floating raft of cattail that means that you can't walk on it and you can't paddle through it. So it's pretty much they found themselves a nice palisade to keep us out of their business. Um, this time of year, in the winter, like we could walk out there. In fact, currently on Rice Lake, the lake that I live on, we have 15 and a half inches of ice currently out on the lake. That is over a foot thick. That sound, If that sounds amazing to you, that is actually not impressive to me. In years prior, I have cut into that ice with a 22 inch chain, uh, 20, a 20 or 24 inch chainsaw bar. I, I can't honestly remember right now and didn't hit water. <laughs> like it's, it can get thick out there. We've had it no word of a lie in the past in like 25th, the winter of 2014, 2015, we had a meter of ice on that lake. This is actually quite thin ice for this time of year on rice lake but that's like just to give perspective there's 15 inches out there out in the open where there's sun all day long on it back in the sheltered marsh where it's getting hit by the wind and it's not really getting a lot of sunlight some spots have you know 12 inches some spots have 15 inches some spots have two inches some spots have one inch because of methane in the water building up and accumulating as, as gas bubbles and pockets, but also just actually becoming part of the ice and permeating that ice and making what we often call sugar ice, where it's actually quite soft and brittle and it shatters below your feet and you it feels firm until you step on it. So I went for a bit of a plunge last week, uh, soaked myself right up to my groin in minus 37, I think it was, with the wind chill. Um, very glad for wool that day. Very, very glad that I was wearing multiple layers of wool. And the trick there is, as we talked about in the ice safety episode, I went back the way I came. When I when I fell down, when I went through the ice, I braced myself. Luckily, the pond there is only like two and a half, three feet deep. And I used my ice chisel to brace myself, push myself back onto the ice that I was just walking on, and then rolled away instead of trying to stand up. And that was just so because I didn't know where there may be other soft spots in that ice. And so I laid there in the snow and piled dry, fluffy, powdery snow all over my wool legs, wool covered legs, and kept rubbing that I, that snow off and breaking the crust off that was on there. And I could literally feel my leg drying 
as I did this because that powdery dry snow kept sucking up water because it's only 10% water in snow and 90% air. There's a lot of room for the water to go. And because it's cold, the water actually gets this weird little kind of thermodynamic reaction to it. And of course, it's being wicked by the body heat of my body body heat of my leg up into the wool base layer that I was wearing and then the wool mid layer that I was wearing and the wool outer layer that I was wearing and it dried very quickly my boot not as much but luckily I was wearing a moccasin underneath so I emptied up my neo overshoe and walked in my moccasins for a while and I was dry ish I'm not going to say I was bone dry but I was dry enough that I could work for another I think we stayed out there for like another hour hour and a half in minus 30 temperatures and just kept on working it, it wasn't, it wasn't a detriment. It was not life-threatening. I didn't have to worry about it uh, because I was dressed properly. And so with that kind of ice out there on the ponds, it's actually getting really challenging to trap beaver and muskrat because A, if we don't find where the beaver dens are and we just start assuming and making kind of guesswork of where we've seen beaver dens in the past, we could spend a lot of time chopping through ice with ice chisels and axes and then set traps in spots that have no beaver. And then we realize that some of those ponds, you know, they're two, two and a half feet deep in some of those little marshes where all those muskrat push-ups are. These muskrat push-ups are almost like a miniature beaver den, but they're not actually where they usually live. They don't have one particular den out there. What these push-ups are are sheltered cattail spots that where they've pushed up a bunch of cattail muck and a bunch of the leaves and kind of made themselves a little shelter where they can get up out of the water, dry themselves off, have a meal, rest for a while before they go to the next spot. Muskrats are very, very active animals. And you can find some of those push-ups end up being kind of like a den during the wintertime. The trick with these push-up dens or push-ups is that they have to be open water underneath for the muskrat to use them. A lot of these ponds are two, two and a half feet thick or deep, and they're getting one foot of ice. And so a lot of these push-ups are frozen solid. There's no muskrats in them. We're fine. We went through, I've gone through at this point, because every day I go and check like five or six new ones um, for the last two weeks. And we're, we have found that 98% of them are frozen solid. And the ones that are open enough that there's some water underneath them, we're finding no evidence of muskrat. There's no sign of their scat. There's no sign of their scent. There's no sign of them feeding. There's nothing fresh in there. And so we're starting to wonder if the muskrats kind of took the uh, took the message and got out of Dodge before the ice got too thick. And so our trap line this year has been very active with our participation on the trap line, but it's been very inactive for wildlife. We haven't seen a lot of, we saw a sign when we first began of fisher, fox, uh, coyote, white-tailed deer, and the white-tailed deer are still there. The coyote are still there. But the foxes are gone, the fisher is gone, or fishers, we're considering there may have been two or three of them around. But also, the only animal that we're seeing daily frequent activity of is red squirrels. Now, I trap red squirrel, I eat red squirrel. But because of how this season has been and because of how everything else is going on, I'm kind of dependent on this trap line. This year, we decided to cut back on groceries as much as possible because the prices are going up as high as they are. We're stockpiled really well for grain. We've got flint corn, flour corn, quinoa, uh, not quinoa. Yeah, we have some quinoa from the store from a year ago. But we grew amaranth and we grew chazantle and we grew lamb's quarter seeds. And we got about five to seven pounds of each down here in storage. 
And then you add like the 60 pounds of corn that we have, two types of corn, 60 pounds each minimum. And then you add the wild rice that we have. And you add all the pasta that we have saved up. We have all the uh, canned goods that we have saved up. And then you add all the produce that we took out of the garden this year and preserved squash, beans, uh, sunflower seeds, flipping carrots and everything. We're good for veggies. This year, I did not have a lot of time to go hunting. I think I mentioned this on one of our last episodes, uh, one of our first January episodes where I was basically lamenting about how much time I don't have. Um, I've spent two months, almost three months of my life this year, just getting a house moved to build into our off-grid home. And that was right at the peak of hunting season. I got three or four days of deer hunting under my belt this year. All three or four days, I never got a chance to put a gun on a deer. Uh, I went out for two or three duck hunts and I got one teal. Usually I do like last year, not this year, the year before, 2021, uh, I dropped 30 ducks in 30 days. And that's not including the Canada geese that I was involved in hunting. I got like five or six of those, seven of those on my own. And of course we share. So as long as there's like a group of us, we're sharing the meat. Uh, that was a really good, decent year. Like that wasn't one of my best years, but that was a decent year. And that was because I got out like, you know, two or three weeks of the whole year for waterfowl. And I got a lot of good small game. I got a, a decent amount of rabbit, a lot of squirrel. So we were good for meat last year. This year I got a teal. And potentially a Canada goose, but both, both me and another person shot at the same goose and we couldn't decide who got it. So I said, ah, I'm, I'll be going out hunting more than you. So here, go ahead and have it. And that was not the case. I ended up not being able to go out for another goose hunt after that at all. So, so we're in trouble that way. Uh, and of course on the deer hunt, I saw no deer. I never got out for a moose hunt. And before I could get out trapping, I had to finish this move. I couldn't set up any of my beaver sets. I couldn't start trapping beaver. I like going for beaver in December. Ice isn't too thick. Often there's still open water. And so it's actually quite easy to set up for them and figure out where they are and, and, and take your shots with your traps. I didn't get a chance for that. I didn't even get a chance to scout for trapping this past year. And so we're kind of hurting. We have, you know, we've got some venison in the freezer from the year before and from a friend actually that had a bunch of that they were worried wasn't going to consume, get consumed before it got freezer burnt or too old. Uh, and we have, you know, like a pork shoulder, like an entire pork shoulder and leg. we got a, a rump from a pork, from a pig. Uh, we've got four or five ducks in the freezer from the farm, from our homestead here. And then I've got one or two duck from last year's hunt still in the freezer. So we're not hurting from meat. But it'd be really nice to have two or three beaver in the in the freezer. You know, that, that would make me feel much more secure for the rest of this, of this winter. Uh, if we had two or three beaver in the freezer, it's not happening. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get the beaver this winter. I'm going to have to aim for beaver really hard in the springtime, which is what I'm going to get prepared for next with, when it comes down to trapping right now, we're trapping for Fisher. We're trapping for Fox. We're trapping for mink and ermine and other small fur bearing mammals that I can get some good fur off of to turn into clothing and warm goods that we can have for the future. But we're not trapping for beaver or muskrat, which are like our main meat sources on this home, on our homestead. Uh, the Canadian Bushcraft homestead lives off of pretty much duck, beaver, and, and muskrat. And we don't have two of those three animals right now to eat. So it's weird. It's, it's a very surreal experience and feeling to not have what we're used to having. Like 
pulled Beaver on uh, a, di- a dinner roll with a little bit of hot sauce and a little bit of like a maple barbecue sauce. Like, forget about it. Like, that's that's home. That's that's security to me. Um, you know, maple glazed muskrat. Man, that is that is fine dining. That is like cuisine to me. And we don't have that. We have some, I got like two or three mallards in the freezer, one or two teal in the freezer, and then a bunch of, uh, of our ducks that we had to cut, uh, kill last year or got killed by foxes. And I recovered the bodies there in the freezer. So we have some meat and we have some pork and beef. Those are not my preferences of meat. I'm not a big fan of pork. I'm not a huge fan of beef. Uh, I'll eat them when I have to, but I prefer my wild game. And so it's weird. It's very weird. So I'm preparing my traps for a spring beaver slaughter. I'm going to be aiming at a lot of different spots across the area, and I'm going to kill as many beavers as I can in a short amount of time as possible so that I am not going to be in this situation next year if we do have a bunch of other hiccups that happen. I want to load the freezer so that I have beaver meat. I'm going to you know, make a bunch of ground beaver. I'm going to make a bunch of roasts and steaks and cuts and use them in making like a beaver version of a cottage or shepherd's pie. Uh, a beaver version of spaghetti sauce, a beaver version of chili. Like basically I use, I use beaver how a lot of people use pork or beef. And I think that's why I, I'm not a huge fan of pork and beef is because I prefer the taste of the beaver in those, in those recipes. So I'm sure a bunch, you can find some euphemisms in there, but I'm not going to dive into that subject with you right now. Beyond that, there's a lot of other aspects. Like we are preparing for spring beaver. We are preparing for the sugar bush. We are preparing for the spring fish run. And so I'm getting ready for sucker and walleye. I've got to start getting some spears made up on the forge very soon. And by the way, on that note, I am hoping very soon in the near future to be having a blacksmith friend of mine, one of my mentors in blacksmithing, Matt Buyaki, on the podcast to talk about what is blacksmithing, what is bladesmithing, what is hardening, what is tempering, what is all this metallurgical conversation, what is the history of blacksmithing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Matt's been blacksmithing almost as long as I've known him. Uh, It's absolutely amazing. I love talking with Matt. Him and I can have really long, really powerful conversations. We had him on the show last year uh, because he's a third-generation mechanic. Uh, talking about car safety while traveling for the winter time. So check that episode out if you want to get a little bit of an insight onto who Matt Buyaki is. But we're hoping to have him back very soon for the podcast, uh, probably in the next couple of weeks. All comes down to when him and I can meet up because we got a few projects we got to get going together very soon. Anyways, uh, beyond that, we have a lot of other projects on the way. Today, Uh, depending on what time you're listening to this, we are beginning our very first Patreon class. We are doing a monthly live class that runs between two to four hours, depending on subject matter and questions from the students and everybody else and everything else, not everybody else, everything else. Um, Starting today, every month, the first Sunday of every month, uh, with a few exceptions where we have to change the dates because of holidays and all that kind of stuff, uh, we have a monthly class so we're gonna be talking uh teaching on uh and today's our very first one so i'm very excited about that i'm up at one in the morning right now i've been getting everything ready for the show for the class and i was like you know what we got to record the podcast i might as well record it now and do a bit of a kind of like an update episode 
And I think that's what this episode really is. It's an update of like what we're doing, connecting it to that seasonal nature of our lives. For a lot of people that have a nine to five urban, uh, urban lifestyle where they're living, you know, in either in like uh, a small city or a big town uh, and they work in an office or in a classroom or in a, uh, a factory or what have you. Even you live seasonally to one degree or another. If you really think about it, you do. I don't, I, I know very few people that don't have a seasonal life, whether it's seasonal, you know, all the way from like, we can get kind of absurd and be like pumpkin spice. And when can I get Easter candy uh, or uh, Halloween candy cheap? Like the day right after Halloween, the day right after Easter, I can get those, those things cheap. When's the best time to get chocolate? February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day. All that kind of stuff. That is living seasonal, but that's kind of like an absurd, absurdist way, way of looking at living seasonal. For me, I live very, very seasonal from the work I do, whether it's, you know, we can only peel bark, tree barks from late May till early July. So that's the time to be making, uh, getting a lot of our basket material. That's the time to be getting all of our material for making wigwams. Or it's all the way to, this is when the wild rice is ripe. This is when the, the walleye are running. This is when the suckers are running. This is when the sap is flowing. All the way to, this is the best time of year to cut firewood. This is the best time of year to break rock, to get good stone, because it's going to crack easily at this temperature. And this is when you should be doing it. All the way to, this is this is where we get our stuff. Like everything is very, very, very seasonal oriented. And so it's very weird for me to talk about that as a podcast episode, uh, without talking about it in, in detail, like why it's so valid and why it's so important for me. And I feel like I have to explain that because sometimes I think we all forget that we live seasonally, that human beings have a seasonal lifestyle from our diet to our actual like physiology. Like here's a cool thing. This is nothing to do with humans, but this is a cool thing. Like this is one thing that I'm getting ready right now. Our ducks lay between 300 and 350 eggs per hen per year. Now, just like humans, ducklings are born with the amount of eggs they will have for the rest of their lives. So you can speed up their hatch, uh, their egg laying production uh, and make sure they're laying all year round by exposing them to more light. In the wintertime, a lot of duck species and duck breeds drop in egg production because they're trying to conserve energy and they're not getting a lot of sunlight. It's that sun. It's the access to light that impacts all life. I'll give you another example. Mink fur farms are the reason the mink trapping industry is dead. I'm saying it and I don't care who hears it. It's the truth. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And there's a lot of reasons why we can't just stop that. Like, how dare we have mink, tra uh, mink fur farms? How dare that exist? Well, no, let's, let's dive into what a fur farm does and why it's something that is economically understandable, uh, especially since we live in a capitalist, uh, capitalistic or capitalist ex existence currently. Let's dive into why that exists and how it exists and why it's considered efficiency. So mink fur farming and in general fur farming, there's reasons for it. First and foremost, trapping is a in undependable source for fur. Some years it's going to be bad fur. Some years the fur doesn't get a good prime, uh, doesn't have a long time to be prime uh, for different reasons. 
the trappers don't get out in time or the season is real poor, but also simply the, the lack of animals sometimes. Sometimes a trapper who brings in, you know, let's say 10 beaver a month, sometimes they get two or three beaver a month. And so that year, that may be the case across the board. So for fur, the fur industry, fur farming is dependable. Add the fact that the fur is dictated by light. A lot of people think cold weather is what brings prime fur. That's not the case. What causes prime fur is not the temperature drop. It's the drop in light. Approximately at the summer, uh, the the, the, uh, fall equinox, we start getting less and less and less light. Technically, since the summer solstice. But after the equinox, it drops sharply less and less light. And this encourages the animals to start getting their fur thicker so that they will be ready for winter before it gets cold. And that's why you can, in certain areas, trap beaver in October that are, that are prime. Not always the case, but that can happen, especially in more northern latitudes. If you go further up into uh, the Northwest Territories in the Yukon, you're catching beaver that time of year in October, and they're prime fur already. And so because the fur is dictated, uh, the fur's primeness or how thick and lush and luxurious the fur is going to be is dictated by light, fur farmers can close the windows and turn the lights off, right? So that means you can get prime fur on all those mink in July or June. That's crazy, isn't it? almost went to a Christopher Walken voice. It's crazy every day. There's mink. Anyways, let's stop that. Getting back to the ducks. The same thing dictates their egg laying. The uh, ducks require between 12 and 14 hours of light for prime egg laying production. For prime egg production, they need 12 to 14 hours of light. That is not what we're getting this time of year. We are lucky if we're getting eight hours of light. And because of the temperatures we have outside right now, like after minus 12, our ducks are suffering. Like the, the Mallard family ducks that we have, like we have East Indies, Indian runners, uh, khaki Campbells, uh, silver apple yards. Uh, I think that's all of our mixes that we have of, of Mallard family or Anas, uh, Anas, uh, cultivars or not cultivars breeds. They can handle like negative 20, negative 30, and they're usually pretty good. It's mostly just their legs you got to worry about at that point. But we also have Muscovy ducks. And Muscovy ducks are a subtropical and tropical duck. And they have these things called, called carnicles all over their face. They don't actually have a feathered face. They have feathers on the top of their head, feathers on the back of their head. But then they get this skin called carnicle all between their eyes and their nostrils and their beak and their neck. And that's skin exposed to negative 20, exposed to negative 30. Any skin that is exposed to those temperatures without protection, like feathers or fur, gets frostbite. And so there was a good 48-hour window while we were rushing to get heat into the coop because they were outside all day and the coop is insulated, but we, we realized even with it being insulated, they're getting cold in there. 
so we re-insulated it. We put even more insulation. We, we cut off as many drafts as we could, and we put a heat lamp in there. I'm not happy with having a heat lamp because heat lamps can lead to fires. And I do not want to burn all my ducks to death. That is not something I want. And I'm going to knock on wood describing that. We also have a ceramic heating tile that's made for coops. So that's the other thing that we added in. But between that period, I had to bring the Muscovy ducks into my bathroom, run warm water, not hot, warm water, like, you know, 18, 20 degree temperatures uh, to wash them. And we had to, I had to apply bag bomb to their faces and to their to their feet and the back of their necks sometimes. We have three Muscovies in total. There's Goliath. He's a 14-pound Goliath. He's a Leviathan. And then he has two little girlfriends, Mary Brown, Betty White. One's a brown Muscovy. One's a white Muscovy. I dare you to figure out which one is which with the names that they have. And I had these ducks living in my bathtub for 36 hours while we treated them because sure enough not only do they have like the little black specks of frostbite the, there's this big kind of like horn on the nose of a mallard of a mallard a muscovy drake they have this kind of knob on their nose right between their beak and their eyes part of the carnival and it's kind of like the waddle and the little knob that you see or, or, or growth you see on a turkey's face um and turkeys can deal with this too. Turkeys have to fight with frostbite as well. Um, so that thing had turned yellow and had a big black spot in the middle. So we've been treating, I've been treating him for about a week and a half now for frostbite. It's been challenging. Very, very challenging. Working on it. We're working on it. We're trying to, we're trying to resolve this issue. Um, He's healing, and now that the temperatures are getting up and warmer and above minus 12, less concerns. There's less worries for the ducks now. Uh, Muscovies can thrive down to minus 12. It's past there that they start to struggle, and as long as you keep them warm, they can survive. Will they be happy? That's a bigger question. I have no idea. How do I know if these ducks are happy? I don't know. I sometimes feel it. Um, when we first exposed them to a pond, they looked happy. They seemed, They felt happy. Uh, when we first experienced them to fruits like watermelon, they seemed really happy. Ducks have taste buds. They don't have strong taste buds like humans do. They don't have as complex of taste buds as humans do, but they have taste buds. Reptiles have taste buds. Crocodiles don't necessarily like lobster. Alligator don't really like lobster. There's a lot of them that are not, they, they, they don't think it tastes good. They'll eat chicken, raw chicken all day long, but they won't eat a lobster. I find that really fascinating. Um, not always the case. Sometimes gators will eat like crawdads and stuff or crayfish for those of us here that live in Ontario. Um, but yeah, animals are complex. Stop thinking that they're simpler machine, simple machines made of meat. But there's this question of like, how much production of egg do we want? Did I want eggs all winter long? At first, I thought, yeah, and I was considering putting lights because you can you can force just like those mink in the fur farms, you can force the ducks to produce eggs by putting uh, white lights or blue lights or red lights or even green lights into their coop, and the right mix of those lights or just using white lights uh, encourage them because they feel like they're getting that light. 
the problem is where we live, it's so cold in the mornings. I don't want to let them out until it gets above minus 14. So sometimes, yeah, we're getting eight hours of daylight, which is not really enough for egg production, but it's enough to keep them healthy. And it's like minus 20 until one o'clock in the afternoon. And so we let them out at one o'clock in the afternoon because I want to keep them safe. I don't want them getting frostbite. Even the Mallard family can get frostbite on their feet if they're exposed to extreme chills and they're not insulated. And so there's this game of like, do I introduce uh, synthetic light? You know, do I artificial light into their coop to help them with health? And potentially with start getting them early on in the season producing eggs. They stopped producing eggs pretty much in October. They stopped. We haven't really seen eggs since October. But, you know, like, if I let them rest through the wintertime and not have that artificial light and don't force them to lay eggs, they will actually have a longer egg production over lifetime. Because they have all the eggs that they are ever going to lay already inside of them. Just like a human. Just like any mammal. Just like most animals in the whole wide world. They don't. They can't just make new eggs. They, all those eggs are inside of them, up inside their ovaries. Uh, man, I'm wishing, I'm wishing I paid attention to biology class there. Pretty sure that's where the eggs rest or is in the uterus. Pretty sure it's up in the ovaries. Anyways... Please correct me and not treat me badly for that, for forgetting how that works. I can't even remember how any reproductive organs work all the time. It's not my forte. It's not what I focus a lot of my study on. But anyways, let's say they have the ability to lay 6,000 eggs in their lifetime. If I force them to lay 365 days of the year, they are going to lay very quick and drop off all those eggs very early on in their life. Afterwards, they're just going to be sitting around not doing anything. And they're going to be, you know, taxing me on like they're right now. The ducks justify the feed and they justify the straw and they justify all the work I do because they're giving me eggs. They're also giving me, you know, pleasure. They're beautiful birds. They're funny they have so many different personalities. It's really entertaining to watch them play and just interact with each other and interact with their surroundings. My favorite thing to do is do stimulation for them. So we'll, in the fall, to cover up all the wood chip in their pen, we'll bring in like 14 or 15 bags of leaf litter and scatter all over. And that gives them a good thick cushioning for the fall. So they're insulated a little bit. But also it covers up all their duck poop from the, from the summer and early fall. <clears throat> but also it gives them a lot of entertainment. They will go through all of those leaves with their bills, looking for little arthropods, looking for bugs, grubs, spiders, everything. They're looking for every bug they can. And they just keep turning these leaves around and moving these leaves around, looking and playing in them. And it's so fun to watch. And of course, occasionally we take a couple for meat. So if the entertainment part only has so much value, like, think about it this way i'm paying for i'm paying for amazon prime i'm paying for netflix i'm paying for disney plus i'm paying for uh crave and i'm paying for hbo max or all this is all hypothetical i don't pay for any of those things but 
what channels do you, what, which ones of those do you watch? You realize I don't use this a lot and it's cost me $9 a month. Do you keep it even though you're not watching anything on it? Yeah. Once in a while you might watch something on there. Maybe something new comes on. Then you watch like that season and then you stop. Like how often do you use that platform, that streaming platform? And it's $9 a month, sometimes $15 a month. Some of them are going up in price now. It's the next, it's the next cable or satellite package run, especially with Amazon prime. I'm so frustrated with that damn platform. Anyways, that's the same thing as like what we have to justify when we feed these birds. Cause they can cost in the, in the summertime, they're costing me a lot less cause I can feed them a lot of weeds, uh, dandelions, garlic, mustard, uh, pieces of parts of the crop that we have to sometimes weed out of the garden are thin. We can toss in there and feed them. Uh, we're feeding them grubs that we're digging up out of the garden. We're feeding them goldfish that are in our rain barrels. They're eating mosquitoes and then they have a population boom. We have too many goldfish in those barrels. I'll take a few dozen of them and toss them into the pond and let them eat them and chase them and have some fun. And it sounds horrible, but that's what we do. And that, that saves me a lot. But in the wintertime, we're feeding them double the amount of feed, if not triple the amount of feed that we do in the summer. A, because we don't have anything else growing to feed them. B, because they need the extra calories to stay warm. And that's enough reason to be like, they're very expensive, you know, at that point, pet. And so for four to five months of the year, they're not producing me eggs. And I feed them offsetting the cost by getting those eggs in the spring, summer, fall to enjoy and consume, give to neighbors, give to friends, sell potentially. You know, out of the 30 waterfowl we have back there, we have four geese, three Muscovies, and the rest are different breeds of, of mallard. And of that, I think 20 to 23 of them are hens. And that means we could be potentially getting seven eggs per bird a day at prime egg laying production. Do I want that right now? All 365 of seven different birds a year. Sure. That could be really efficient for me to be able to, if I was selling a lot of eggs or do I cut back and let them rest through the winter time and not stress them out and let them lay their eggs at an organic rate and let them lay them when they feel like laying them. That that's an option too. The, the question that comes in there is your ethics and both are valid. For me, it's, I'd rather be getting eggs from these ducks to the day they die okay, uh, until they can't produce eggs anymore when they're ready to lay them, because that means I'm going to have a lot more eggs from them in the long run than I will in the short run. They're the same amount of eggs from that duck. Like mathematically, both are accurate. The question is, do I want to stress my birds out, have them lay all their eggs right up front? And then in, you know, three to four years, they stop. And I get no more eggs from them and they live for, you know, 10 to 12 years. Domestic ducks can live up to 20 plus years if kept in healthy environments and fed well. So I can get three to four years of eggs or I can get, you know, upwards of eight to nine years of eggs from the same birds. For me, that's what I prefer. I, I, you know what? I, it's the same thing as like everything else. We have less sunlight on us right now. Now it's, we're after the winter solstice. So we're getting incrementally more and more daylight every day. I know that I know, 
but we still have people dealing with seasonal depression because we have less sunlight. We're getting less vitamin D. We're getting less, all the benefits of sunlight. Our brains are programmed for light. Our, our eyes require light. Although there's these are like really cool. By the way, if you want to have a really cool, just learning about life, check out PBS on YouTube. They have a show called eons and they talk about every concept of evolution. Like the fact that we now believe that all mammals started off way back nocturnal. There's a lot of good evidence showing that, that we were nocturnal animals. However, there's a lot of evidence showing that we actually probably were, you know, crepuscular, like deer are, you know, diurnal, like there was a lot of variety. But the belief is early mammals and even stem mammals may have been mostly nocturnal. And that's because of how our eyes are shaped. That's because of how our physiology is shaped. It's really fascinating, but you cannot deny the fact that sunlight helps the human body. It helps your emotional well-being, your physical well-being, your mental well-being, general and everything. It's also easier to just work in the woods in broad daylight. Moore's used to talk about it. If, if it wasn't for you know, safety aspects, it'd be better to be active at night and sleep during the day in a survival situation because you could soak up the solar radiation of the daytime while you rest in slightly warmer conditions and then remain active during the coldest parts of the day, which is nighttime. And I agree with him on that. If you have the right enough lighting to work throughout the night, building your shelter, going out hunting, going out checking your traps. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. How many of us have a flashlight that can run 12 to 15 hours straight and produce a wide enough, bright enough beam for you to safely work throughout the night? I don't. And I've used a lot of different flashlights. Olight, Streamer, uh, Light, uh, Lighthound, which I really miss that brand. Um, Biolight. I, I, I carry the Biolight 330, uh, I think is the name of them, uh, headlamps. They're my favorite headlamp I've ever used. They're nice and light. They're very portable and they recharge by a USB cable. So I can plug them into a goal zero or whatever branded solar panel you have while you're camping. And I can just recharge my headlamp when I'm not needing it by the power of the sun. Or I can plug it into a car charger or I can plug it into my wall socket or I can plug it into my laptop if I have to, or a power bank. Uh, I go spearfishing with these things and we're out there for like six hours straight spearfishing. And that light has always worked for spearfishing for me. <clears throat> but bright enough, wide enough beam that I could be swinging an axe all night, running through a trap line that could potentially have, you know, holes in the ice, uh, setting traps in the dark with a flashlight. Is it bright enough to run 12 to 15 hours? I don't think so. And so as much logic as there is to sleep during the day and work at night, in the wilderness, it doesn't make sense safety-wise. And so we remain diurnal for the most part. I'm a bit of a night owl. It's going on 1.30 already, and I'm probably going to be up for another two hours, and then we're teaching at 1 p.m. <laughs> it's just how my brain works. Um, but we need light. I'm happier in the summertime. I'm happier when I'm in. The, my favorite days in the wintertime are to be out at minus 30, out on a marsh, cutting a hole in the ice while the sun shines down on me. It is my favorite sensation is working in the trap line, 
in bright, sunny weather. It is so great, especially when it's really cold out, so you can't build up too much of a sweat, and you can just keep working and working and working. It's great. Absolutely great. I feel happiest then. Winter is my favorite season, but sunny winters are my absolute favorite. Anyways, looking at our ducks and mink and me and humans in general, there's a lot to be thought about. Am I going to put lights in the duck coop? Maybe one day. I'm considering putting in lights in the coop mostly for their own health with a timer that only turns on around, you know, like 7 a.m. and shuts off around nighttime, nightfall, so that they're not getting, you know, pressure to lay eggs, but they're getting enough light because that's the biggest problem right now is we have them in this coop cooped up. It's a dark coop with a red heat lamp inside. Um, for And they get out for like maybe three or four hours right now because it's so damn cold. Now, next week, if it's supposed to be staying around zero, I'll let them out all as soon as I wake up in the morning, like 7, 38 a.m., I'll go and let them out, no problem, and then put them to bed right at sunset. But there's other considerations. Do I cut a hole in their coop and install a window? A double-pane window, that'll be insulated. That'll be warm inside. They'll get sunlight, and the sunlight can actually help warm that space up as well. It has a black roof, which is supposed to help warm it up from the sun, but it hasn't so far because the straw on the bottom of their coop is frozen solid. I can't drag it out. So with a ceramic heating tile and a heat lamp and a, and a window, that might help them, but they're also going to get that light they need to make sure that they're healthy. I, for me, I don't want them forced to lay eggs, but I want them to be healthy. And so these are the things that I'm planning out and trying to figure out and trying to figure out these seasons. I'm, I'm excited for the spring because it means that my ducks are going to be able to be out more. They're going to be getting new fresh growth coming up out of the ground that I can feed them and they can feed themselves because a lot of dandelions and garlic mustard pops up in their coop area and then they eat the crap out of it. It's amazing how fast. Like if you want, like me and my buddy Gerdo, who's down in Six Nations, we've had a lot of talks about just using animals to help manage the landscape. Goats to remove purging buckthorn. Pig to remove purging buckthorn, uh, pigs and, uh, goats for garlic, uh, for dog strangling vine. But then I keep going back to geese. We have four geese. I'm hoping to get rid of three or four, uh, all four of them this year. I don't know yet. Uh, depends on if they're, uh, you know, goose hens or if they're ganders. Um, if they're ganders, I really don't want them. They're just violent. Uh, so far they're pretty chill. So far they're pretty good but I kind of consider keeping them a lot because they can manage invasive species. They can manage lawns. Um, if you're trying to figure out ways to be more, you know, green, you look at like the projects that are happening in the United Kingdom and in parts of North America with sheep, because the sheep browse low, they don't browse high. They go after grasses and forbs and stuff. They don't go after shrubs as much. They don't go after trees as much. And because they're low browsers, they can live under solar panels. You can have a giant solar farm and sheep can be living under those eating the grass. That would usually become a problem for the solar panel. Geese are similar. Geese are almost exclusively green food eaters. They, they can eat fruit. Yes. They can eat uh, grains. Yes. But they really love grass and they really love green leafy greens. And so when I'm weeding the garden... Uh, or I cut the lawn, I'll sometimes stop from cutting the thickest part of the lawn where it's really thick, dark green grass. And I'll go in there with a machete or a scythe or a hand sickle and I'll cut 
like a garbage bag load of green grass. And then I go back into the duck coop pen area and I toss it out in front of the geese and they will eat that over the next like two days. And when it starts to get dried out, they'll leave it alone. They don't go after it anymore. They want fresh green grass. Where I'm weeding the garden, sometimes we get this crab grass that takes over and you got to yank it out by the roots. And then if you toss it anywhere, it can just start growing again. So what do I do? I throw it into the duck pen and the geese eat the crap out of it. <clears throat> you can ethically manage lawn care and ranch land and try to remediate soils with waterfowl and, and other small livestock like sheep and to a degree goats, two degree pigs. You got to be really careful with those because they can go feral and they can become invasive species. You got to be really careful with them. Uh, but ducks and geese, the, one of the reasons I got the ducks in the first place is because I grow a lot of squash and I grow a lot of beans and I grow a lot of corn and I grow a lot of other leafy, uh, shrubby kind of plants and vines that can collect slugs and bugs. And so part of our design of our duck farm homestead is to have them as pest control. They go in, I put up, uh, the plan is basically I'll be able to put up a net once a week in the garden, which is separate from their coop, uh, put a net around it and then with a couple of stakes here and there. And then I just open the door, bring their water dishes into the garden and let them wander for a day supervised as they pick away all the bugs. And as they poop all over the place, they pick up all those bugs. And then I usher them back into their pen at the end of the day, send them back up into their coop for the night, close everything up, take down that fence and uh, that, that net fence and a week later do it again. And that way they can keep up on the cucumber beetles, the squash bugs, the slugs, the snails. And that's, we hadn't been able to do it this past year because we were still trying to develop our coop area for them for most of the summer and get it established. But this year that's definitely part of the plan. And their fecal matter is a Beautiful. I've talked about this on the podcast before. It was a beautiful ratio of NPK, of nitrogen, potassium, and, and uh, phosphorus, or nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. NPK. Yeah. <coughs> Anyways, uh, anywho's it. That's part of the benefit as well is that the fact that they are establishing stronger, richer soil below the wood chip and wood mulch and and leaf mold and straw that we keep putting into their pens. They're helping us build healthy soil that we can later grow better foods in. Um, and then we'll move their coop and pen. In about five to six years, we're going to clear another portion of our homestead. And we're going to basically treat them as long-term pasture. So one section, which has all the apple trees and the pear trees and the quinces and the cherry trees and everything else that we're trying to grow, they're currently in. And they will eat in there and poop in there and do all their things. And then in four to five years... We move the pen about 50 meters and they do it again. And we let that other area rest for a while. And then we start for the first year or two. And then we start growing food in there, in the soil. While we let them clear out and, and you know, the geese eat up all the garlic mustard and, and dandelions and everything else. The ducks uh, eat up all the bugs in that pen area and then they poop everywhere. And then in, you know, four to five years after that, we bring them back to the original pen spot. We've cleared out the garden. We let the ducks go back in there and they defecate, eat up bugs. The geese eat up all the weeds. And we can keep building up our soil. And if we can get, you know, like two or three of those kinds of pens or so, in other words, pastures, that's pretty good. So that's part of the next stage of what we're doing here at the homestead. 
when it comes down to spring, the other things I'm looking at is like spring bark. We are going to be, uh, and I, when I say we, I mean like the crew, Canadian Bushcraft crew, and we're trying to get a few other folks involved. We're hoping to go up in March. So with the bark peeling, we were talking about earlier, you know, late May into early July, that's the best time to peel bark. There's one exception to that, and that is birch bark. You can peel birch bark all year round as long as you have some heat to expose it to. Uh, traditionally, this was done with either boiling water or building a fire nearby and exposing it to the flame from a distance. The other option nowadays is using a blowtorch very, very carefully, or a heat gun is a better option. Um, these work really well for peeling the bark. And the reason we want to get birch bark in the wintertime is A, it's a useful material. And if you can peel it in the wintertime and use it for stuff, do it. But secondly, the phloem layer of the inside of the inner bark or the outside layer of the outer uh, inner bark sticks to the inside layer of the outer bark. So the outer layer of the inner bark sticks to the inner layer of the outer bark. I know that sounds confusing and it sticks to it. And when you peel it, you get this kind of almost fuzzy, ruddy, rusty red color. Now, if you draw a template or a pattern on that, expose it to warm water. Not doesn't have to be boiling hot, just fairly warm water, hot tap water, uh, or coffee that's a couple hours old, uh, like an hour old, or tea that's been cooled by the but till it's safe to drink. That temperature there, uh, you can trick that phloem into thinking, hey, it's springtime. I can separate from the outer bark and do my job now. And then you just take a scalpel, an X-Acto knife, uh, a little steel scraper, an awl, a bone blade, and you can scrape away everything that's not part of the pattern you did. And this is called bark etching. And this is done exclusively with what we call winter bark. And winter bark begins around October, November, and continues to stay like that on the tree until about April, May, sometimes a little later, but usually around April, May, it stops. So one of my goals this year is I'm getting ready to build my birch bark canoe. I've built a lot of birch bark canoes for other people with less than optimal material of what they had and what we were able to get at the time in short windows. This year, I need to sit down and build a canoe for me. It may not happen until August or maybe even September, but I need to build this canoe. It's going to be my canoe. I, I've built a lot of canoes with other people, for other people. I need my canoe. And, and that's really the end of it. Like that's straight up what has to happen. And so this year we're going to gather a lot of winter bark. I'm going to roll up at least two or three nice wide, thick rolls of winter bark, set them aside. And then I'm going to start looking for the cedar wood. I got to get at least six gunnels worth, uh, gunnel pieces. So out whales, in whales and caps, um, at least six. I'd like to get a half, a, uh, a little bit more than that. I'd like to get like eight or 10, just in case they got to be as straight a grain as possible, as few of knots as possible, as clear of wood as possible, as clear of wood as uh, clear of wood as possible. Wow. That was weird to say efficiently. And then I got to get a, about a kilometer to two kilometers worth of spruce root or cedar root or uh, tamarack root. I'm really hoping it's not tamarack. We're, we're going to aim for spruce root for the most part. Uh, cedar root works too. And then I've got to get, you know, like a five gallon buckets worth of gum and render that down into clarified gum and use that to be making my water seal. 
And that's really like the majority of the work this year is like, that's going to be between the moving of the house. I'm going to be going out, milling out cedar for the house. And while I'm milling out cedar, I'm going to be keeping an eye out for gunnel trees and keeping an eye out for rib canoe, uh, canoe ribs, trees and sheathing trees. And, you know, just going along until I find them and getting what I need. And I'm going to find my bark now, like in the next couple of weeks to a month. And I'm going to be getting, which means I might not get a lot of time in the sugar bush. I may not get a lot of time to do a lot of things until the ice clears and then I can trap. But that's pretty much my spring. And I I, I don't want to, you know, dive too much into like what my plans for the summer are because we're still trying to get this house done. And oh my goodness, uh, the homestead continues to grow <laughs> and all the work that comes with it. But I'm really, really excited for this spring. As much as I love the winter, I'm really looking forward to the spring for spearing, for winter bark harvests, for sap running, for trapping beaver and muskrat to, you know, maybe I'll do a spring goose hunt. Who knows? And of course the eggs and with the eggs means potentially fertilized eggs. And if we have some fertilized eggs, that means we may be hatching ducklings and goslings this year. And chances are we'll be selling them because we don't have the room. We have 30 ducks and geese in our backyard. We don't have the room for any more. So yeah, that is the most of it. I'm really excited for this spring and I'll be excited for the summer. I'm excited for the summer for the global bushcraft symposium. I'm excited this summer for going on some canoe trips up North, maybe with a birch bark canoe that I build. Who knows? Uh, I'm excited for the, the, uh, house and my move. So I can live off grid and start building like our podcast studio up on the homestead with its own little like bunkie or cabin built and everything like that all set up and ready to go. It'll be awesome. And our cooking pavilion that I want to build this fall, I want to build this big cooking pavilion, almost like a picnic shelter. That's got like a smoke hole at the top that I can let smoke. Out so I can have an open fire and a cob oven and, uh, a stone barbecue and a bunch of other stuff that I want to have in there and a dining table that can fit like 10 of us so I can have my loved ones with me and we can have a good meal. I can roast uh, a spatchcocked de uh, deer or lamb or something over the fire while we're boiling, you know, corn over the fire and making bread in that oven all right there and then serve it to everybody around that table. Like those are the things I look forward to. Those are the things I look forward to. I don't look forward to, you know, striking it rich and making a few grand. I, I, I get excited about ways I can just be with the people I love on the landscape. Camping trips, hunting trips. I'm so excited for next year's hunting. I'm so excited for next year's trapping. I'm always looking to that horizon, like Yoda warns Luke about waiting to see what happens next. Excited about where I'm going, what I'm doing. That's, that's how I keep myself happy. That's how I handle the last two years that we've been all in. That's how I've handled my entire adult life is seeing what I can do in the future and getting excited for it. I might not accomplish all of it. I may not get a canoe built this year. I may not uh, have a bunch of eggs to, uh, to, to, to uh, incubate. That's the word I'm looking for and sell. I may not have, you know, the, the duck fence set up that can allow them get to get into my garden and fertilize while they remove pests. 
I may not get the giant pond I want to build for them this year set up with the filter the way I want it running with an aquaponic kind of concept. I want to be able to grow snacks like millet and uh, wild rice and duckweed for our ducks in a, it, out of their own waste coming out of their own pond. Like that's part of this whole system that I want to develop. May not get that all accomplished. As long as I get my home accomplished and I can move into it and I can be comfortable and I can be happy in it, that'll be enough. But I'm really looking forward to everything else. And I hope you're looking forward to it with me because you're going to be going on that journey with me. There's going to be a lot of new things happening here on the podcast, on our YouTube channel, on our Patreon. And of course, I cannot bring up Patreon without talking about our dear patrons. People like Trevor Shaw, Dale McCreary, Adam Scriven, Rob Vachon, Vacon. Oh man, Rob, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing your last name properly there. Calabrese Design, so many, many people. Jasper, Dario, Bran Mayo, so many. Jose Garcia, so many patrons that I want to give a huge shout out to. You are why we can keep doing this podcast. You are why we can keep having lights on the house. You are why I can have a homestead with ducks and geese and corn and beans and squash and everything. You're the reason I can have my off-grid home. You're the reason I can have amazing crew that hang out with me and do things. You're the reason why I can go on trips to harvest what I'm harvesting because you were helping finance this project, which is Canadian bushcraft. Thank you so very, very much from the bottom of my heart. And for those of you that are in the Dragonfly and Dragon Hunter tiers on Patreon, I look forward to seeing you in our classes every first Sunday of every month. See you soon. Take care, folks. Bye.